Well, for the first time in about three months, turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. Uh, we left off in a larger section of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 7 through 11. And we really broke right in the middle of that, finished up chapter 8, and then uh, did a long series on community, really union with Christ and how it impacts the way we relate to one another. Uh, and then Darren uh, preached and took us on a journey through John, uh, part of John, chapter in John, seeing Christ. Uh, obviously last Sunday, baptism, and then now we're back in Nehemiah. And so I have no confidence that you remember three months ago. Um, I'm not sure I remembered three months ago at, at this point in life. Uh, but I'm not going to take a lot of time. I, th I think pretty quickly can bring us all back up to speed. Uh, walls have been built. Temple's there. Everybody shows up to uh, the city. But people have lot, not largely moved into the city yet. And now has come the moment that Nehemiah really longs for, and that's the rebuilding of the community. Uh, he didn't come just to rebuild walls. He wanted the community restored. And so chapters 7 and 11 are kind of bookends of these long lists of names of everybody that's involved. Uh, chapter 8 is a restoration of the word uh, because the people come and they're experiencing the word and there's these feasts that they're celebrating. It's the feast of the seventh month and there's, that is the, the month that is like the holiday month in the Jewish calendar would have taken place in the fall. Uh, we're actually really near to the time that that would have happened uh, in our own calendar year sometime late September into October. Chapter 8 is really a restoration of their commitment. Uh, or excuse me, chapter 9 is, and then chapter 10 will be the commitment itself, and then we're back in 11. And then we'll kind of finish the book up. So we're really close to the end. I think we've got three, maybe four sermons left, and we'll wrap up Nehemiah. But chapter 9 is really their response at the end of these feasts, the end of this feast month with lots of word and uh, they would have had the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Trumpets, and they would have celebrated the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And, and so now we're at the end of the month, and the chapter actually opens by telling us we're at the end of the month. He tells us even the day that is, this is taking place, that this is occurring, all to prepare us for it. Chapter 9 is a very long chapter, but it's what are we going to do now with the word that we've heard, and how are we going to respond to it? And so, a little bit out of the norm this morning, we'll read the chapter through as we just hit some of the different points, rather than trying to read the totality of it here at the beginning. And so, let me just start by maybe introducing our big idea this morning in a way that we can think about it. Hope can happen when we find the story of our life in the greater story of God's work. Now, what in the world do Cinderella, Harry Potter, and Luke or Ray Skywalker have in common? Uh... Other than the fact they're all kinds of modern classics that they have for us today. Well, they all center on an orphan of some kind, an orphan of some type. Uh, whether, whether it's Ray's missing parents, whether it's Luke's being raised by his aunt and uncle, but he doesn't even know who his parents really are or were. Uh, Cinderella, who's left in this almost abandoned condition under the care of her evil stepmother. Harry, who's being raised by uh, a terrible, terribly abusive aunt and uncle. He lives in the in this little cupboard under the stairs. What do they all have in common? They're all orphans, and in the midst of their suffering, in their midst of their orphanage condition, somebody shows up and rescues them out of it. And they're rescued out of it by somebody breaking in and saying, the story of your life 
actually intersects with a much bigger story. You matter because your story matters. And so you can be lifted up out of this struggle and you can actually accomplish much more and and you realize that you have a much bigger purpose and that helps your sense of self-worth and value and now you can do all these things and so suddenly Ray's weird abilities become what she can use to conquer and Harry's scar that he's mocked about becomes a sign of victory and Cinderella's lowliness becomes her humility. And so just this interaction with their story that rescues by kind of connecting them to this grander plan, this bigger purpose. And so suddenly there's hope. There's hope because all of my suffering and all of my struggles and all of my difficulties have not been for nothing. And so why do these appeal to us so much? I, I think they find so much traction among audiences and they're modern classics because, quite frankly, it's what we all want. Every one of us wants our story to matter. We want to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. We don't necessarily have these grand plans. We don't want to be the deliverer of the universe or even the deliverer of a high school necessarily, but we want it to matter. We want our lowliness and our obscurity, our sufferings and our struggles to have meaning. Our hearts crave for this. And so uh, living in a fantasy world through these characters, and I, and I don't mean that badly, I think they're great stories, but it's because our heart longs for it. That's what makes something popular. We can find ourselves in it. It's what we like about it. And so can the Bible help us in a deeper way? Can the Bible push us beyond just fiction to reality? Is it possible that your story matters? Is it possible that your story connects to a bigger story? And in that moment, you can get greater clarity, perspective on the sufferings and struggles of your life. Well, I'm going to contend this morning that that is exactly the reality of your life, my life. There's nothing more important than the reality that God loves you and that he's at work in your story because, because your story is a part and an important part of a much bigger story that he's telling, a story of redemption, of rescue and restoration for his glory. The passage that Darren read this morning in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. There's a reason that that phrase shows up on little fake rocks people can put behind their kitchen sink and on bumper stickers and in songs and in stories all the time because people, Christians, want to believe that to be true for them. God's saying to you, I know the plans I have for you and they're not to destroy you. Well, those verses are spoken to the nation of Israel before they go into captivity about this moment that we're reading this morning. This is the fulfillment in part of that. And so I would argue this morning that as we learn from how does Israel as a nation, as a people group, as a community, how do they process through the struggles of their story and see it in this grander plan of God, and it ends in amazing hope for them. My argument this morning is that that's not just for them, that that's for you and me. And I think it can actually give us tremendous hope and courage. 
And so if you have asked questions like, what do I do now? (laughs) What next for me? If you've struggled feeling like your story seems to be the end of the book, but there's a lot more life left to live. If you wonder if this season of life will define all of who you are. If you've ever wondered, why is this happening? And what do I do with it? And Steve, how do I process through it? Then this chapter is for you this morning. And so with that in mind, hope can happen when we find the story of our life and the greater story of God's work. And so let's get started this morning uh, by just understanding it's time for a good story. Let me just read the opening verses here of chapter 9. And so Nehemiah chapter 9, I hope you follow along your Bibles with me. It says this, now on the 24th day of this month, that's going to be the seventh month, that's the, the month of all these feasting. And I'll talk about why that date matters a little bit here in just a moment. But it's the 24th day of this month. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chennai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah. Good job, Steve. I actually don't know how well we did with that, but we made it. What did they say? Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, I don't know where your favorite part, place is for a story. When I was a child, uh, hiding under my blanket with a flashlight, reading till late in the night was a favorite reading place for me. Uh, but so was the treehouse my dad had built. I would love to go sit out in the treehouse and I'd take books and uh, we were in the library all the time, and so I'd check out a bunch of books, and I'd just go in the treehouse and, and just read. It was far enough away that uh, if chores were being called for in the house, I couldn't hear, and I had a fair argument as a child. I, I didn't hear you. I didn't know, right? Uh, my grandmother, honestly, always had a stack of Reader's Digest in the bathroom. That seemed to work well. Um, where do you like to read? Not modern day for me. It's a little different. It's sitting in my favorite chair in the living room with a cup of coffee, uh, as, often as, not, as often as not now, reading on my iPad rather than a physical book any longer. Uh, sometimes it's reading by listening to audiobooks, just driving around. Uh, some people are like, I'm not sure listening to an audiobook is reading. Tell that to someone who's vision impaired, and you can have that argument. I, it counts. <laughs> And so whether it's by listening to a good audiobook or sipping a cup of coffee while I'm sitting in my favorite chair with some dimmed light, just enough so that I can read, comfortable, there are places and times that are simply more conducive to reading. Places and times that engage our minds, that rest our bodies, that help us to travel to a new place if it's fiction that we're reading or learn new things if it's nonfiction. Uh, What if there are times in life that prepare us better for the hard work of reading the story of our life in the context of this greater story that God is writing? I think that's exactly what we see here in the opening verses of chapter 9. We could think of it this way. Are there places in your life, are there moments in your life that are more conducive to you being introspective in a healthy way? To consider what's going on and what should I do with it? Yeah, 
there are. And I think understanding what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 9 can help us to understand that for some of you, that may actually be a season you're in right now. Or it may be a season that a friend of yours is in, a child, a grandchild, a neighbor, uh, a, a coworker that you can even help them by Nehemiah 9. Or that you can file away in your own mind knowing the day will come when you'll need some of these truths in the future. And so I think a great place to, to be to be reading the story of our lives is in the context of restoration. It's in this larger context of chapter 7 through 11 of Nehemiah. He's in Jerusalem. They've built the walls. He's led the people. They've pushed off the enemies. Chapter 8 was this restoration of the word in the community. They're reading it. They're celebrating. Uh, They've now begun to do the hard work of these feast observances, Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths at the end of the month that lasted for seven days. And so the Feast of Booths, after they'd done all these, Feast of Trumpets, first day, Day of Atonement, is in the middle of the month, or the 10th day. The 15th day is when they would celebrate the Feast of Booths, where they pretend like they've lived in the wilderness, and they did that for seven days. That would take them to day 22 of the month. Day 23 of the month would be another Sabbath day. What day did this start? The very next day. These people have been soaking in the Word for 23 days. That leads to this point. It's in this context that they begin to understand what God is doing. Why is it important that we see this mourning happening here? Well, if you just look back in chapter 8, if you have your Bibles open, you just, let me just remind you the way they started the month in verse 9 of chapter 8. Nehemiah, who is the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is at the start of the month, and these initial feasts, the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur and the the Feast of Booths, they were all intended as celebrations of what God has done. And so they were saying it's not appropriate that you cry. This is like someone who is doing ugly crying at a wedding because they're sad. Can you imagine how awkward and uncomfortable it is? Like, there are things I I get to do as a pastor just because that's the role that I fill. So I get to do wonderful things like baptize people and uh, last Sunday, baptized my own son. I get to do wonderful things like helping to serve the Lord's table and, and work through that. I get to do um, things like serve families at funerals and, and by doing funeral service. And I get to serve couples by leading weddings. And the reality, though, is we're not a large church, so I don't do lots and lots and lots of weddings. And so when I do them, it's one of these moments that like, they're kind of terrifying. I like them and I hate them at the same time. I, lo- I love that moment, and I love uh, celebrating the covenant of marriage and, and, and all the fanfare and the fun of it. But, like, all eyes are on you. And, like, the last thing I want to do is I, wanna, I don't want to mess up somebody's wedding. So I feel all this pressure, right? Oh, no, I might say the wrong thing. I might do the wrong thing. Ah, I'm afraid. And something always goes wrong in every wedding anyway. I just don't want to be that thing, right? I don't want that couple 20 years from now at their anniversary laughing and saying, yeah, remember when the Steve did that? Like, I don't, I don't want to so I feel this pressure. It would be my nightmare to be doing a wedding, officiating a wedding. You know, I got my little minister's manual, and I'm up here, and I'm like reading through, do you take this man? And all of a sudden, someone over here, <laughs> like, this is awkward. You know, uh, somebody, you know, crying out to the Lord, dear God, please don't let this go through. Like, that would not be what you want to hear at a wedding. 
there's a time to celebrate and there's a time to mourn. And at these feasts, it was not time to mourn. So they told the people, respond to the word by doing what God's wanting you to do. And he's wanting you to celebrate him. Because all these celebrations were a celebration of him. Uh, whether it's the Feast of Trumpets, come and hear the word at the temple. Whether it's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, come and celebrate God's forgiveness. Whether it's the Feast of Booths, come and celebrate his provision in the wilderness. It's not time to mourn. But literally, the very first day they have where they could start mourning, they're at it. It happens in this greater context of restoration that God is doing. We need to be in the right place to seriously take in the truth and do the hard work of considering the story of our lives within the greater context of the story of God's work. What kind of context is that? What can bring us to that point to really help us? Well, I think it also happens in a context of brokenness. Sometimes people come to the word intellectually, but not spiritually. They come because its truth and its facts are fascinating, but they don't come receptive. It's borne out by what they do with what they hear. We can tell by how we interact with truths of the word. What do we do with it will reveal how we came to it. James describes it as looking into the mirror of God's word and walking away unchanged. Seeing hair all over the place or your shirt buttoned up wrong or whatever and you don't fix it. And so you receive it you receive when the word says that there's this in your life, but you don't do anything about it. Hebrews describes it as being slothful of hearing. What a play on words. The slow-moving creature that has algae that grows on its fur is the way sometimes believers hear the word. With such a, I'll do it eventually, lazy, lack of, intentional pursuit of growth and change thinking that change happens by osmosis that simply by hearing the word will change you but we understand the bible says don't just be hearers of the word but doers of the word look how these people came though fasting sackcloth and with earth or ashes on their head the fasting is a way of saying god your, the food of your word is more important than food for my body. I am setting aside, filling my hunger. I'd rather my stomach be growling, and when, I'm, when it's growling and I want something to eat, that I'm reminded, no, what I really need to consume is the word of God. The, the sackcloth is a way of saying, I'm going to put off comfortable clothing. I remember one time when I was a kid, my mom bought me this sweater, and uh, she was like, you need to wear this sweater, and it looks nice on you. And it was like the scratchiest thing ever. I hated that thing. And then some girl said, oh, that looks really nice. I think it was like 12 or 13. Man, I wanted to wear that sweater every Sunday. And just like sat there like, oh, like even thinking of it just gives me the eebie-jeebies, you know? To intentionally put on sackcloth, it's this thick, burlappy kind of, Clothing is a way of saying we don't want to be comfortable anymore. So I don't want a full belly and I don't want to be comfortable. I don't want to be lazy any longer to put ash or earth on their head. It's a kind of way of saying physical death. Uh, you come from the ground, you to the ground, you return. 
And this was cultural all over uh, the Middle East. This was not just uh, the Jews that thought this way. And you can even realize that when Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh, repentance, they all put on sackcloth and ashes. It was a mindset of I am like I'm dead unless God reaches down to me. That's how they come. These people are broken. Filtering our story through the greater story of God's work is going to require us to be broken spiritually so that we're actually ready to hear and do what we're called to do. There's seasons of our lives that are just more conducive to that. That drive us to the end of ourselves. That drive us out of our comfort and into our neediness. The truth is we're always needy, but we don't live like we're needy, do we? Uh, all too often, we're like the church in Revelation that we think that we are full and we are clothed and we have need of nothing. And so God in his kindness brings us to a point of spiritual readiness to hear. It's not just there, it's in a context of community. Uh, he pointed out that they put all the foreigners away from them. Why? Why would they do that? Because this moment has everything to do with them as a people group. Uh, lots of what their confession is going to be is about how they have operated as a nation. This is not some racial moment. This is not a cultural elitism. It's that we're going to own the sin of what we've done and who we are. And, and so we're not going to drag anybody else into our mess. We're going to do this with everybody else who's serious about it and who is under this covenant with God that has been forsaken. This isn't prescriptive in the sense that we need to make sure everyone around us is just like, the, like us. This is not prescriptive in the, in, the, in the sense that it's like, oh no, as a church, if we're going to do the hard work of spiritual uh, introspection, that we've got to make sure then that there's no one else here but somebody just like me. It's not prescriptive that way. I will say that the call of God to be invested in each other's lives is clear in the New Testament. Just last week we saw in Ephesians about how we are a new people. God in his kindness is rescuing and saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so ethnic and racial barriers should fall down among the people of God. They don't exist even gender barriers, he says, neither male nor female. And so there's not some kind of hierarchy, hierarchy that way. Slave nor free. Barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek. It, it's like we are God's people. What unites us is Christ. Rather than any of these other things. In Hebrews, we were reminded that we are pushed when we gather together. Part of the reason we should gather on Sunday mornings is to encourage one another to do good works and to love other people. Paul even tells the church later that he suffered for their sakes. And he didn't mean in that that he had suffered because of them, but rather that God had brought suffering into his life to grow and change him for them. And, and so there's this intimate connection among brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't separate your story from the story of other believers around you. You can think of it this way. If someone goes through a trial or a tragedy, there are these concentric circles. This is not original with me. And if I could remember the dear lady that I read this from, I would, I would give her the credit. But there's these concentric circles of suffering 
And so when you go really close, there's this inner circle. So whatever tragedy or suffering that is, if it's a health diagnosis, if it's, if it's something else, like there's this, there's this inner circle of people. When my wife had cancer, there's this inner circle. And no one, no one experienced it more than her. Next to her was me. Next to me is our three kids. Did many of you suffer with my wife as she worked through her cancer journey? Yeah, I'm not trying to be unkind, but you were like out here. But then there's all these people on Facebook and they're like out here. There's neighbors and everyone, they're like out here. There's these increasing circles. But you can't tell the story of that journey without telling of how it interacts with all these other stories. And so when God brings a community together, our stories are connected. They just are. And so one of the best ways for you to understand how your story interacts with God's story is to understand how it's intersecting with everybody's story around you. Move the target off me. I'll pick on one of you because that's, you know, all's fair. I'm sitting here watching June nod in affirmation. Her story of moving here with a husband struggling with Alzheimer's to be closer to his daughter and her son in Charleston and then caring for him. And some of us knew Wayne. <laughs> Probably a couple times a year, I remember Wayne towards the end of his journey whistling while we were doing worship time. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> like June's part of that story is right here next to it. My part of that is like way out here. But you can't tell the story of June's life and her marriage with Wayne, her care for her husband, without telling about how it impacted the other people here. It's community, folks. And so if you really want to understand how your story intersects with the bigger, grander plan of God, you've got to do it as you interact with other people. It's prescriptive. It, it's, excuse me, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So, so, but you've got to understand its relation to community. I've got to move. It's also in a context of consideration. Nehemiah points out this uh, time frame here. These are roughly three-hour segments, quarter of the day, quarter of the day, the way they would break down their day. So it's three hours to hear the word, and then three hours of worship, confession, consecration before God. Events have brought them to a new place of evaluating and considering what they're going through. For most people, that's a season of life change. Something like your graduation, a new baby, a new job, loss of a job, loss of life, health problem, health healing, retirement, tragedy, or blessing. Any of these and all of these can bring us to important moments of introspection and consideration. Any of these can bring us to the point of asking those key questions. What do I do now? What do I do next? Why is this happening? What... what is this place in my life? What is God up to? This is natural. This is not forced. That just comes out of us in these kind of seasons. What do I do now? You marry off your last kid. You come home. The house just seems quiet. What do I do now? You lose a job. What do I do now? You get a job. What do I do now? It's a baby. What do I do now? What next? What is God doing? You hear bad news. You get great news. What do I do now? The Jews here, they've been driven to this point. And what they have come to realize is that they have a real distance from God. Sometimes that, it does that, doesn't it, in our lives? Something happens and it reminds us and suddenly it's revealed, you know, I'm a lot further away from God than I realized. They're going to end the chapter by confessing to God how they're still suffering because of captivity in Babylon. 
While they have returned and the temple is built and the walls are rebuilt, they are still in bondage and servitude to the nations around them. They are still threatened by enemies. They have been made aware that something's not quite right. Things happen in our lives that interrupt our story. These moments, these seasons are actually a kind gift of God calling us to reevaluate and consider. And so what do we do then with it? And how do we work our way through it? Well, what is the big picture? Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of the best biblical theology chapters in the Old Testament. What I mean by biblical theology is it helps us to understand the overarching, you want to get real scholarly and academic, I'm going to teach you a word that you're like, oh, let me share these with other people, make me sound really smart. The meta narrative, <laughs> the big narrative, the big story of the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9 does a glorious job of showing that to us. It gives us the big picture. What is the big picture of God's story with Israel? And so what they do as a people is they start thinking about where we're at in the struggles of my story right now, and they're trying to figure out what's God's bigger plan and how does this cog fit into it. I was working on my car some time ago, the, the relentless torture of my life at this point. And I finished a job, and I was about to close the hood, and when I did that, I always shine a flashlight around, and I found a bolt. And I'm like, where's this bad boy go? Where does it, because I was pretty sure I'd put them all back in, where does this fit in the meta narrative of this car? And the junkyard with the rest of it is what I felt like saying. Sometimes in our story moments, that's what we're asking. Where does mine fit? Where, where's my cog in the bigger machine? And so they start thinking about the big picture of their story with God. And so can I encourage you, what you need to do is like them, you need to know your history. We could actually break this chapter down into a timeline of Israel. They start all the way back in creation. Let me read some of these sections for us this morning. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. I love it. They're like, how does this fit in, and what does God want from us? I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> you ever ask somebody, so what are you going to do with your life? And they start all the way at the beginning. Well, my grandfather was, and I'm just trying to figure out what you're going to do now. What they're doing is they're trying to tell you their story. They're, they're going, so they go all the way back to the beginning to God as the creator. But then they, they, they like fast forward through lots of history to get to Abraham. The start of the nation. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. I'm just going to go all the way up to Abraham. And then they skip another huge chunk. They go to Egypt, to the wilderness. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. We got a couple hundred years of the history they just skimmed by. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. We remember that, God wiping out Pharaoh's army. If you study Egyptian history, there's a span of about 40 years where Egypt did not attack other nations or seek to enlarge their property. Why? Because they had lost their whole army. And it took them about 40 years to recover. 
It's amazing how archaeology continues to simply reveal the truth that the Bible already teaches us. But anyway, verse 12. By power of cloud, you led them in the day, by pillar of fire in the night, to light them for them the way the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. This is the giving of the Mosaic law. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven, manna, for their hunger, brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. They are rehearsing history, history, history. You could do this with an organization. This church, this church was planted almost 30 years ago because there was a belief that there needed to be in Columbia area a biblically ruled, balanced church that sought to share the gospel in this city and around the globe. That's why it was planted, that's why it was started. There came a moment in the history of this church out of a seeking, uh, because of a compulsion of a new pastor, that the church then almost for a decade drifted into a much more being ruled by tradition and law. I didn't say there was no word, but there was lots more tradition and law and rules. It was actually a far cry from the intent of the church in its beginning. For the last 10 years, we've been on a journey to be going back to being ruled by the word. And I'm so thankful for what God has done. I'm thankful for those that have been here from the beginning. I'm thankful for those that he's brought into our church and moved out of our church. I'm thankful for how people have moved away for good reasons, for bad reasons. But our hope and our, and our goal and our perspective is that God would use them to expand his kingdom. And so this church is here today because of God's work. But it has a history. You can do this with an organization. But you can also do it with your people's lives. What is your, the story of your life? Maybe you grew up unchurched, or maybe you grew up churched. Maybe you lived a certain way, did certain things, sinful, good, bad, hard, wonderful, hard things that were brought into your life that you had ever planned for, traumas you've experienced, sufferings that you've had, gifts and moments that define you. Let me ask you this. What if you had three hours to tell your story? What would be the moments you would tell? Well, you'd have a lot of time to share a lot of things. But what if you only had 30 minutes to tell your story? Well, what would you leave out? Well, you're going to start to distill down to key major moments. What if you only had three minutes? Do you know if you read from this point in Nehemiah to the end of the chapter, it would take you about three and a half minutes, maybe four, depending on the speed with which you're going to read and how hard you're going to find some of these names. But what if you could tell your story? What if you had 30 seconds to tell your story? What would an exercise like that do for you? It would compel you to distill your life to the major moments. Not as some grade, not like I'm going to grade you on this, but what would you do that you would want somebody to know the big things, the important things, the meaningful things? I grew up here. I lost this person at this age. I won this award in this grade. I pursued a job. I went to college. I changed my major. I graduated. I met this person. I married. It didn't last. God moved me to something else. And this is where I'm at today. You would distill it down to the major events of your life. Thinking about it this way compels you to key in on the ways and the moments of your life, frankly, that stand out the most in your mind. And that's actually what matters the most, is what stands out to you about your story. 
It will help to clarify. And frankly, it will point out to you probably some of the things that are the hardest for you to process. But it's not enough to just think of it this way. The, the Jews break it down into two broader categories as they think about their story that are helpful for you and I if we think about our story. And so it's helpful to see it rightly. And the first one is the character of God. Now, if I were going to go back and read back through those verses from 6 down through 15, you would see this. Let me just point some of these out to you about the character of God. They see God as their creator. He made the heavens and the earth. They see him as the chooser. He's the one that chose Abraham. They see him as the covenant maker. He's the one who initiates relationship. They see him as the deliverer out of their trouble. When they begin thinking about their story, it's not just the things that have happened to them, but it's where is God in the story of my life? When I look back at my history, where is he? Now, one way that I've seen people do this sometimes is thinking, do you have moments in your life where God has literally saved your life? I think of my youngest brother laying in a neonatal intensive care unit. I think of my oldest brother uh, driving the car with my mom on a wintry day going over an, overpa an overpass. One lane overpass, they hit a patch of ice and did a full 360, about 60 feet over I-695. It literally, literally inches one way or the other, and they'd have both been killed instantly. And so some people will think of it when they start thinking of their story that way, seeing how God delivered them. I think of standing in a school with a switchblade or a butterfly knife ready to stab a kid, and God it miraculously kept that from happening. So maybe it's deliverer, maybe it's been health, maybe, maybe you think of it as God speaking to you by calling you to salvation. I don't know, but what they do when they see their story rightly, they are looking to see God's work in their history. The character of God. In the latter section, latter sections, 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 I'm going to get the word out. The later sections, they point out that God has love and mercy for them, that he provides for them, and that he continues to pursue them. How do you process your history? Now, there is some risk here. There is risk for people because we all know that hindsight is 2020, right? It's true in the sense that we get some perspective when we look at the past. The danger, though, can be that it becomes unhelpful if it becomes guilt-laden and the person stops moving forward believing that if they had just seen what they, had done, seen what they could see now, then they never would have ended up with the struggles they ended up with. News alert. Nobody's going to get it all right or perfect. And becoming stymied in life that you can't move forward because when you look to the past and you now see it with 2020 hindsight, that you're like, now I want to import that somehow and I want 2020 foresight. You ain't a prophet. And so there is a danger if you let this so just consume you that you quit moving forward. And so it's important as you look to the past that you are considering where did I see God and how did God keep work, work in my life? When you look at people in the Bible, I think one of the most dangerous things you can do is to view them as binary. What I mean by that is good or bad. 
I think binary, and that, that's what it means, one or the other, binary looking at people is helpful in a biblical way where either you're saved or you're lost. But you cannot look at people in the Bible and think good or bad. David, good. Saul, bad. That's not helpful. Abraham, good. Samson, bad. David was a murderer, a liar, and an adulterer, serial adulterer, and rapist. That's what happens when you're in a position of power and you make a woman bow to your whims who doesn't have any power. That's what it's called. Abraham lied and threw his wife literally to the wolves to, out of his own fear. Samson, well, I'm okay, still okay, Steve. He's binary, he's bad, violates all... <laughs> All of the Nazarite vows, and yet he's in Hebrews 11, noted for his faith. People are complex in the Bible, and so are you. So don't drift into a very bad place when you're processing your past, thinking, I'm bad, I'm bad, or I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You're complex. Instead, let your focus be, where was Jesus in your mess? Of your goodness or your badness? And so ask this, where is God in your story? Maybe you could even ask it more specifically, where do you see his mercy and his grace? Where are certain places where he did not bring all the consequences you deserve? When did he meet you in your need? When did you see and know his kindness, his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his tenderness? You can do this by using the truths that they highlight. How has God shown himself as your creator? How has God shown himself as choosing you, as pursuing you, as delivering you, as forgiving you? Where has he answered prayer in your past? And so as they process their history, they process it first through the character of God, but they don't just do it that way. They also process it through with their behavior. They consider how they have responded to God as a people group as a nation, as a community. And I think that's fascinating because as they're doing it, they don't assume that our, our forefathers did that, but I never would. Instead, when they look at their past as a community, they say, our forefathers did that, and I would probably do the same thing. Adam and Eve, who were morally neutral, chose themselves. You know what I'm going to roll with? So would I. And I'm not even morally neutral because I'm born a sinner. So you know what I'm choosing. They look at the past with a sense of humility and they consider what they did and who they were. And it's not a pretty picture. Pick up in verse 16. They and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They were disobedient to the law. They refused to obey. We're not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Think about that. They did not process who God was and what he had done for them. And so they missed his grace. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is our, your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. 
the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night for, to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. They fast forward to the next time break. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities in a rich land, took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they're filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your presence. Verse 26 is like the definition of them though. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their back. Killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. This is so hard and painful to do. It's hard when we consider our past and see God's faithfulness, but our idolatry, unfaithfulness, and ingratitude. That is a hard and harsh reality. It's painful. I don't want to think about my past in ways that I dismiss God's grace and his mercy. I don't want to think about the many, many times I sat under the proclamation of his word, heard it, knew it was talking about me, and walked away unchanged. I don't want to think about the countless times right before I was about to take communion. I threw up all these quick flare prayers asking God to forgive me for all these sinful habit patterns that I had, only knowing, full well knowing, that Monday I'd go right back to them. To truly acknowledge how unfaithful we have been, to see how idolatrous we are, it's sad and it's discouraging, but it isn't all the story. It isn't the end of the story, is it? It doesn't have to be the last chapter of our story. It takes humility, faith, and courage to live in this reality. God's not done with you yet. How prone we are in difficult seasons, the exact kind of seasons where we need to do this kind of good, hard, introspective work. How, how quickly, out of a book of life, that has a hundred chapters and we're like at chapter 12. And we want to say it's all done. Your past does not define you. The God of your journey and your life does. And he sets his love and his affection and his pursuit upon you. He was not done with David. He was not done with Samson. He was not done with Solomon. He was not done with Abraham. He was not done with Peter who went back to fishing because he was so ashamed. He was not done with any of them. Doing this hard work is good for us, but I'm calling you to have the faith and the courage and the humility to recognize and to realize he doesn't take you on this kind of journey to bring you to this crushing end the knee at the end like you've watched some movie let the credits roll i'm done they don't stop here it'd be so sad if it ended and so where is this story going that's the real question famously in cinderella she's delivered from suffering when her true worth is seen and she's embraced in love 
and Harry Potter is true worth and value is revealed by love and rescue. Luke and Ray Skywalker are both lifted from obscurity by the revelation of who they are. The focus on all of these stories is put on them. Here's the twist. Here's the twist. Finding true hope in your story happens not by making it about you, but by understanding the love of God at work over, around, and in you. Hear this now. Your story with all its twists and turns is part of his bigger story. This is really important because seeing it that way is what will give you genuine hope. Hope can happen when we find the story of our life in the greater story of God's work. The end of the chapter takes these two truths, God's character and our response, how we behave, and it combines them into three glorious realities. When they get to the end of the chapter, they skip all the way to where they're experiencing so if you go down to verse 32, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's one of the things they've learned as they thought about their history. God loves me and he keeps his word to me, right? Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Now I'm right, talking about right where I'm living. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You've been righteous in all that has come upon us. We have dealt faithfully, have acted, and we have acted wickedly. I've come to this point in my life honestly. I, I arrived here honestly. It's not, there are things that have happened to me. There are things that I've done. I'm right where I'm at because of the culmination of all of it. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. They go on and they talk about, we've disobeyed, we didn't honor, and now we're still living in the results of the captivity. This is almost like them saying, God, when is Jeremiah 29, 11 going to happen? That you know the plans you have for me. And so where do they arrive at? Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our priests, our Levites, and our what is that covenant? We'll unpack more of that next week, but it's basically this. We will be your people, and you will be our God. There are three truths as you work through your story. First of all, God is approachable. They own their own guilt and responsibility, and there is a shame that happens in that. But the shame drives them to God. If you find failure in your story, and you will. When I look at my story, 48 years, if I'm honest, it feels like lots more failures than anything else. And even if I separate it out of the way I feel about it, just objective reality, there are serious failures. Going back home uh, to Baltimore a few months ago, driving past the on-ramp where I got so angry one day that this guy cut my dad off that I then brake-checked him. And so he stopped in the on-ramp blocking me, got out of his car, and I got out of my truck, and I was ready to throw down on the side of I-70. It's so deeply shameful to me that I had such a lack of self-control over anger. I'm not proud of that. 
I was a fool. I think of failures. They seem so big in my life and in my mind. And when the shame of failure comes on, I want to be like Adam and Eve and knit fig leaves together or hide in the bushes. I want to say, well, other people are worse than me and other, I'm not as bad as other people were. And it was a, it was a product of, of my upbringing and it was because of this and it's my personality, it's this. And if he hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. And all of this is an attempt to cover because when I take all of that off, the reality is I stand before holy God filled with shame over the failures of my past. What am I going to do with the shame of that moment? And what I love that they do is they are reminded about who God really is, and he is approachable in that moment. He demonstrates grace intended to draw them back. You know, in specific response to Israel, God communicates this in Romans 2.4. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You can tell if a person is seeing their history rightly by the response to God as they know and tell their story. Do you think I want you to know all these things about me? Do you think I don't struggle with insecurities and fears of how you'll view me or judge me? Do you think I'm so bold? There are some things I do in preaching just because I know it's what I'm supposed to do, but I do not feel like doing it. I would much rather you think of me as having it all together. I'd much rather you think that your pastor is the kind of pastor that would never have a panic or anxiety attack. And the reality is I was crawled under my car this past week and I thought I was going to die because of claustrophobia all of a sudden. I've never had that before. I am weak and I am broken and I am needy. But the question is, what am I going to do with that shame? And so as you process through the history of your life, can I encourage you to think of it this way? You come with pig-stained clothes and he comes running to you and throws his arms around you because he is not ashamed of your stink. Because he loves you like a father loves a prodigal son. That's what you do with your shame. God is approachable. The Jews run right back to him. What are ways and times you've seen in your life God run to meet you? And could he be doing it again right now in your life? Secondarily, God is calling. There's a theme throughout this chapter that points to Christ. When they're listing out the character and work of God, they point to, they don't even know this. <laughs> this is one of the beautiful moments of the Bible, but they point to Jesus. Let me list several for you because they're too good. He is the creator. Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus is the one who made all things. They talk about the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Jesus, Galatians 3.29, is the fulfillment of that covenant. They talk about the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Jesus is the light of the world, giving direction and guidance. 
Jesus is the water from the rock that feeds them, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Jesus is the bread of heaven, the manna in the desert, John 6.35. Jesus is the greatest prophet of the prophets that they kill, Matthew 23. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the commandments that they ignore, Romans 10.4. Jesus is the one who brought grace and truth that they reject in John 1.17. What they see in their history, not fully understanding it, was the rejection time after time of the work of the Messiah before he was ever born. When you think about your story, I'm asking you to think this way then. Where do you see Jesus calling to you? Where and how has he led you? Where has he directed you? When has he delivered you? When has he protected you? When has he pursued you? When has he spoke to you? When has he healed to you? I wonder if he's not even speaking to some of you right now. Your story is part of a much bigger story. That he is working for his glory and your good. And then lastly, God gives hope. Where does this lead them and where should it lead us? To that very last verse, a firm covenant. Well then God, where else would I go? I covenant with you. I'm going to put my name on it. Their hope for the future of their story is the faith to believe that the God of their past is the same God of their future who loves, cares, and is calling them to himself. So they come. Hope is the belief that your story is still in his hands, that he is in control, and he is at work. I don't need prophetic 2020 foresight. I just need to have the faith to believe that the same God of the last 48 is the same God of tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that. And that fills my heart with hope because when I look to the past, what I see is a God who has loved me, who has cared for me, who has called me. Has he not done that for you? Maybe it's time for you to consider your story in the context of the greater story that God is writing.